Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast Spoiler Specials. This one Ooh. is very exciting, very, very exciting indeed. So exciting, Nick Assembly may just spill his tea all over his laptop. That's how exciting it is. It is dedicated to the ninth or tenth, but who's counting, film in the oeuvre of Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. How exciting. And joining me over the next 45 minutes to an hour or so to discuss the film in spoilerific detail are three of the gang. Shall we say? <laughs> no gang. one's been cut from this. No Tim Roth uh, here. Instead we have Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I'm here to do the devil's business. <laughs> no, it was dumber than that. <laughs> Joined by Ian Freer, who's very much like the sort of the the, uh, the Cliff Booth of he this is, this he? pod in many yeah. ways. In many ways. Thank you very much. Also, because I want to say by the the, the way, it's ten films. It's well, so because not 10 films. I, no, he's he's made ten at the moment, so it'll be eleven films. And I know this for a fact. Because I paid thirty-four pounds to see Kill Bill one and two, <laughs> it was seventeen pound each. So it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's the eleventh. This is the tenth. So you're film saying of, if, the, uh, if the if the cinema charges you for both, that's two that's films. That's two films, isn't it? That's a fair. That's a fair assessment. Two. F- oh my God! Here we go. We're getting straight into it. Two films released months apart, both of which have their own credits and outros and intros. I'm saying they're two different films. Yeah, but I'm saying thirty-four pounds. Thirty-four saying. pounds. Thirty-four pounds in freer. So know. we should we should probably tell Tarantino, so he doesn't need to do yeah, another one. He's probably he can, he's probably really embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. What a way to go out. A, a, love, a love letter to Hollywood is a way yeah. to go out. Yeah. Yes, great. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Nick Desemlin has also joined us. Hello, Nick. How Hello, are you? pumpkin puss. <laughs> Chris, Chris doesn't actually. I don't Chris like, doesn't yeah. like that name. I don't like that name. I don't care. Okay. But you're upset, so we'll talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So, yes. So this is the ninth or tenth film, depending on your point of view, from the director, Quentin Tarantino. It's very, very exciting. And as ever, this is a spoiler special. So if you have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet, then stop listening to this podcast right now. Highly to your nearest multiplex or independent cinema. Mm. See the film, all two hours, 45 minutes of it, and then come back and listen to this. And why should you listen to this? Well, because us... Four giggling idiots are going to be talking about it, but also because we're about to hear from the man who wrote and directed the film itself, and I'm very, very excited by this, Quentin Tarantino, talking pretty much for the first time, actually, about a lot of the spoilerific third act stuff, big revelations in the movie, and of course, why he did what he did with the end and with the course of history. Very exciting indeed, Uh, and he was in good form. Didn't get into everything with him, only had about 34 minutes, something like that. So there are some big questions we didn't uh, we didn't get into. Hopefully we'll talk about those after we're done. But this is Quentin Tarantino on the Amber Podcast for the first time. And probably last. Once he hears us talking about 10 films versus 9. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast for the first time. I can't believe this is the first time you've been on the Empire Podcast, Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Uh, well, it's yeah, I think yeah, I'm, I'm coming here fault. before you guys had podcasts. All right. So <laughs> I know, I know. But you're here now. It's all yes, good. I am. Yeah. It's all good with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, you must be delighted with the, the reaction so far in the States, the opening weekend, your biggest yet. Yeah. And also, I, I guess generally, do you keep your ear to the ground in terms of how people are reacting to the film as well? Oh, yeah. No, I mean... Uh, um we're here like the uh, uh, the Tuesday after it opened in yep. in, in America, and so uh, just before I got on the plane on Monday, I uh, actually it was Wednesday I think today. Um, I don't even know what day it is. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, but I just spent uh, I spent the whole weekend uh, going all over Los Angeles. 
uh, seeing it play at this theater. I saw it play at the Bruin, where, where she goes to, <laughs> at the Cinerama Dome, at my theater, the New Beverly. And so, uh, and, uh, um, and one of the things about my movies is I have scenes where the audience is kind of supposed to react. Yeah. Either it be laughter or suspense mm-hmm. or exclamation points or some, what, or whatever the deal is. So it's pretty easy for me to walk into a theater and see whether or not the movie's working or not because I have all these like uh, signposts along the way. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you go up to the, uh, the, the counter and go, uh, can I get into this movie for free? I, 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 I kind of uh, 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 Well, it. normally the idea is I'm trying to sneak in without like causing too much of a commotion. So. <laughs> I might say that at the New Beverly, you're, you're pretty sort of anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's the one place I can sneak in. <laughs> I, I mean, there are a number of, uh, of scenes, I think, that are designed to elicit that reaction from audiences mm-hmm. as you say and I, I think it's hard to talk about this movie in, in a way without really kind of starting with the end mm-hmm. uh, in a strange way because I imagine that's where you began when mm-hmm. you first began to conceive of this project in terms of revising what happened to Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring mm-hmm. and everyone else in, in the house on that night I get the feeling that you are gripped by a burning sense of injustice obviously that what mm-hmm. happened on that night is horrendous yeah. and you're using the power of cinema to rewrite history is yeah. that is that where you, you is that where you began no that's kind of that really kind of is uh i mean i guess the real beginning beginning was witnessing a dynamic between uh an actor had been at things for a while mm-hmm. and their stunt double that had been yeah. working for like a you know, at least around a decade together. Yeah. So that's, I think, where I first came up with it. And then when I, but then once I actually started coming about putting together a story, then yeah, I did come up with the end first <laughs> and then had to work, uh, work backwards to get, uh, uh, to get there. But yeah, there is a, um, you can say, oh, I'm using the power of cinema to right wrongs or wh- whatever yeah. that, I mean, um, I think the, the sentence I would use is, uh, Metaphorically saving Sharon. Yeah, I think that's really what it what it comes about, you know. And I think there is, uh, um, you know, I think that last half hour is can be excruciating mm. because you've gotten to really care for this woman. Yeah, and as you're hurtling hurtling towards her demise, it, it should be kind of horrendous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly my reaction the first time around, mm-hmm. especially the way you begin to go into forensic detail yeah, yeah, uh-huh. of the day. You're breaking it down. Mm-hmm. You have narration as well. Mm-hmm. And it's very mundane. No, it almost seems like a little uh, uh, a true crime reenactment yeah. TV drama. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And uh, is that why you, you introduced it? Obviously, you have narration a little bit earlier yeah. on the film as yeah. well. You have that uh-huh. one throwaway line. Yeah, yeah, that's uh-huh. a big fucking line. Well, I had a, yeah, I, uh, I had a couple little more moments. Mm. Uh, uh, spaced out through the movie. They kind of just ended up not making the cut. Like, for instance, like when Sharon is, uh, uh, when you see her folding clothes, mm-hmm. all right, that was, uh, Roman was going to London that night. Okay. All right, so that was uh, one of the things she always did was uh, uh, pack a suitcase for him. Yeah. So I had a little narration saying that. Uh, uh, when she bought the uh, uh, Tess of the Dubervilles book, I could have stopped and had a little narration that yeah. explained how he made the movie and yeah, it was because yeah. she bought him the book. Uh, ultimately, I didn't think I needed it any of that but that was the idea that's yes. there's a lot of stuff around the edges that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you could fill in but if mm. you had Kurt Russell interrupt the film every five seconds yeah 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 exactly yeah. <laughs> 15 hours long but also that is Kurt Russell as well can you talk that about, is Kurt Russell about, yeah. talk about that him pulling double duty as, as Randy and the narrator well uh, um, well Paul Thomas Anderson used uh, 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 Ricky Jay as, as both his narrator and a character in uh, um, I believe it was uh, Magnolia, Magnolia yeah. and I thought that worked out pretty good so I didn't yeah. have any questions about that yeah. and then um, but also I like the idea that 
one, Kurt Russell actually has a very good voice for this kind of oh. thing. I, I actually recorded about four different people doing it with Kurt being one of them. And, okay. we, and was sort of like, okay, well, whichever one, I don't know which one's going to win, so we'll see. All right. And, you know, <laughs> Kurt kind of won in a hands down and everyone else did a good job. But the thing is, what was great about Kurt, one, he's got a good voice for this and yes. he pulled it off really well. But also the fact that uh, Kurt is almost like a, a narrator from the time period. He yes. was there. Yeah. You know, I mean, Kurt actually, a lot of these shows that are mentioned and are brought up, Kurt did those shows. Yeah. You know, Kurt was on The Virginian. He was on uh, High Chaparral. He was on these things. Now, you know, he was like 12 or 13 or yeah. 15 when yeah. he did them, but he still did them. Yeah. You know, he is of this era. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. So there is that aspect, you know, almost like the way the DJs are a period narrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about the story. He's like a period narrator. He would have been in Bound Yeah, he could, he could have absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, he's a little too young. He's a little, uh, he would be too young for Bound but his dad okay. Bing Russell would have yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely been in Bound yeah. and he would absolutely know who Rick Dalton is. And he probably would have worked with Rick Dalton somewhere along the line. So as well as having this forensic true crime countdown towards uh, uh, the events in the, in the Tate House, you also have, though, this wild card mm-hmm. of Rick and Cliff. Mm-hmm. And the audience, and I was wondering, well, what's going to happen? How are they going to affect the outcome of this, especially yeah. since you build Cliff up yeah. throughout the movie to be almost this indestructible yeah, yeah. fighting machine? All right. Then you do another interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You make one of them blind drunk mm-hmm. and oblivious in mm-hmm. a swimming pool. Yeah. And the other one stoned out of his gorge. <laughs> yeah. Tripping balls. <laughs> <laughs> can you say the F word on this? Of course you can. Okay. Tripping fucking balls. <laughs> <laughs> Tripping fucking balls, Alex. <laughs> is that a technical term? I think it's a technical term. Yes, I don't think that yeah, it is. It's a technical term. Um, in Brooklyn, it is. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um, where did that idea come from in terms of ratcheting up the tension? Because I imagine most audiences will know what happened mm-hmm. to Sharon and Jay. Yeah. But some won't. Well, having Rick be drunk during this going on, that's kind of easy because he just seems to be drunk he's every drunk. night. Yeah. Um, but the uh, uh, Cliff smoking the acid cigarette actually is not in the script. I came up with that later. I came up with that. Uh, really? uh, yeah, I came up with that way, way after the fact. I came up with it just before. And we didn't shoot the end till the end of the movie. Okay. Uh, I normally don't shoot my end. Uh, the end is usually the last thing I shoot in my movie because I wanted to kind of make the movie. Because mm-hmm. yeah, part of the thing is I write these these scripts that are just like big novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm basically adapting the novel every day into a movie. And then I adapt it even further in the, in the editing room. Um, but consequently, because of that, I try to make my movies in somewhat order. That's not always the case, but to some degree, at least as far as the end is concerned, I kind of save it for the end. For the simple fact that as I'm getting to it, it's like, okay, well, there's what I wrote, but now I know what I've made. And now I know what I think I have. And so now I might have a better idea of what I need to bring my movie to climax. Yeah. All right. And I like that term. Uh, 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 I mean, it's not going to be that different from what I've done. I mean, from what I wrote. Um, but if there is an aspect of, look, I, I do kind of know now more the movie I made. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then I just came up with the idea of the dip cigarette. I saw, uh, um, I watched, um, a, a, you know, there was a lot of pseudo documentaries done mm-hmm. in the late 60s about the hippie movement where mm-hmm. it's like some things are staged, but some things are real. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and what was it? It was, oh yeah, it was a movie called Revolution. 
and uh, had the soundtrack album for it for a long time and finally I got a chance to see the movie and there was literally a scene of uh, a, a flower girl selling acid dip cigarettes <laughs> uh, uh, to, just literally people stopped at a light you know just like you know, you stopped at a light waiting for the light to change and she'd come hey you want to buy an acid dip cigarette and actually the dialogue was just like what does that do smoke it to get you high um, and so I wrote that down as just a possible thing yeah to put in the movie at some point. And, uh, and so I wrote it down as a possible thing to, uh, to have somebody approach Cliff. And then I thought, well, well, hell, why don't we just have him smoke the, have him smoke the cigarette that night? And I, it's one of the better ideas I've ever had, I gotta say. Uh, the, it's almost like the entire end almost turns on it, even yeah. in a way that I wasn't quite prepared for. And I kind of get the audience in the right frame of mind uh-huh. for what's going to happen because of the acid dip cigarettes. And, and it was funny because like Tom Rothman, um, he didn't know I did that. And so he's watching the movie for the very first time. He's like, where the fuck is all this coming from? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm, I, I must be losing it because I don't remember reading that in the script. I go, well, actually, we kind of added it just like the last couple of weeks before we shot it. It's crazy. <laughs> Unbalances everything. It unbalances yeah, yeah. Cliff. It adds to this kind of you know the trippy Balzac nature. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of this of the scene. You know the the Manson family are high as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Manson yeah. family are high as well. <laughs> so it all it all feeds in. Yeah. And it kind of maybe as an audience, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe Cliff is going to be mm-hmm. not quite as indestructible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's no, that's for sure. And also there is this aspect about Cliff that, uh, uh, and I think you know this is one of those things I've learned uh, from being a dramatist. Is you can create anxiety in audience members by because they've watched a lot of movies and even they mm-hmm. have more they have more insight into how the drama is going to f- flow than they consciously think they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of subconscious working on it, and so the thing about it is it's uh, it's one of those things where dramatically Cliff could die. Yeah. He's the one of the characters that dramatically could die and it would almost kind of make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. for the story. Yeah. Well, if you actually have a character that dramatically you can imagine killing and the audience actually cares for that character, oh, well, you can, you can go to town with the audience. <laughs> <laughs> because you, they, you literally, they, they literally are scared for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're worried for them, yeah. all right, in a way that they might not be worried for other characters in the movie. Yeah. And then, like, you can really go to town on an audience's nerves when you actually luck out with that kind of situation. I get that. And that, that comes into play as well in the, mm-hmm. the Spam Movie Ranch scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Where, the, where the tone of the film just suddenly shifts. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really unsettling. It's almost like a horror film, that, that, that I, entire sequence. Yeah. Well, my editor, Fred, uh, uh, Fred Raskin, uh, um, said to me when he got the dailies, for it and he started just like the first three days of dailies of cliff kind of entering the place and you know seeing the girls checking him out mm-hmm. and whatever and you know he was like wow quentin i i didn't realize we were making a horror film <laughs> i go oh so you think the f- footage is good he goes yeah i mean it's like it's like texas chainsaw massacre i mean but like you know with a budget and like an all-female cast almost uh he goes it's really creepy and um like, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's one of my best sequences yeah. I, I've, I've ever done. And, and, and I think, like, everybody in that sequence is just is kind of perfect. Yeah. And the whole movie is about putting putting back the uh, the confrontation, putting back the confrontation. You have that mm-hmm. amazing shot of Tex riding on the horse. Yeah, yeah. And getting in, uh, getting it up to the ranch just as Cliff pulls away. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about this, this delayed 
almost gratification in a way of, mm-hmm. of holding yeah. back what happens to the end. Yeah. Because the end is almost cathartic in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Is that, yeah. is that how you intended it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. elements of comedy in there as well, obviously. Yeah, there's definitely comedy in there, all right, as, as, as it goes on. And, you know, um, yeah, it's like... A, <laughs> Uh, um, it's meant to have a similar impact to what the, the uh, you know the final sequence of Straw Dogs has, yeah. except with some gallows humor <laughs> thrown in there. So some and actually, yeah, and uh, and and actually, I'm kind of you know uh, rooting for the lead characters more than I'm rooting for Dustin Hoffman, and I kind of hate the other characters more than I hate those blokes right, that are messing around in uh, in straw dogs. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fair. That is fair. Can we talk about the last yeah. shot? Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because yeah. I'm fascinated by the last shot. Um, the last shot of the movie is uh, Rick, who is this guy who has been struggling to come to terms with this new Hollywood and mm-hmm. he has Plansky living right next door yeah, yeah. and he suddenly he has inadvertently he doesn't know this inadvertently saved mm-hmm. Sharon Tate's life yeah they don't know it either he, they don't know it either yeah. and uh, he gets this invite into this world that he has mm-hmm. been struggling to, to to understand yeah yeah and it's this beautiful overhead shot a lot of overheads in this, in this mm-hmm. movie yeah, yeah. as uh-huh. well um, we call him Sally's POV Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, didn't know that. And it's uh, it's this beautiful overhead shot. Can you talk about uh, ending the movie in in that way? Well, you know, it's funny because I came up with that image, that final image, um, five or four years ago. Really? And when I came up with it, I was like, "Wow, I think that that could be one of the most powerful endings." Yeah. I've ever done. And I actually think the Hateful Eight ending is fantastic too. Uh, 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 But I came up with that and it was wonderful. And then, um, but then I put it away. And one of the reasons I I put it away is uh, I'd done just a little bit of research on the Manson family and I was just getting ready to do a deep dive and do more. And then I, and this is, you know, this is like four years ago or something like that. And I, and all of a sudden I was just like, wait a minute, let me stop before I get started on this. Uh, do I really want to let the Manson family into my head? Yeah. Do I really want to let them into my psyche? And do I really want to think about where they were all coming from? Do I even want to find, I mean, cause I have, I wrote a scene that I, I wrote a couple, I wrote more scenes with Charlie than I ended up using okay. in, in, in the movie. So it was like, do I want to know Charles Manson so much that I actually understand his uh, vocal patterns so mm-hmm. I can write like realistic dialogue for him? Do I want to know him that much? Do I want to let these guys into my head that much? And the answer was no, I don't. <laughs> and so I put it away. Yeah. Uh, but then the material that I wrote was good enough that I kept going back to it in between each thing. But the thing that really kind of led me along the way was that ending, was that ending shot. And so it's very gratifying that you, that you like it and mm. then you say that it had effect because it's been in my head for five years. So... In fact, it was even weird because we did that earlier than uh, than, than I would imagine because we had to shoot out those houses. So I, I think I think we shot that somewhere like only with like uh, we had a hundred day shoot, so like somewhere like around day thirty five or something like that. And I was like, "This is strange. I can't even imagine shooting more of the movie after we've shot that because that was <laughs> half the reason I wanted to do the movie." Yeah. Uh, um, so it was. Uh, uh, but. It was it was very cathartic to have that in my head for so long and to work it out and do it and have it be exactly the way it was in my head and, and to capture it on celluloid. Yeah. That was one of the more cathartic moments. <laughs> why, why did you want to end in, 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 in particular with a, with a Sally's POV? Uh, well, it was just, you know, uh, um, 
I think it's like a. Uh, well, I don't want to put a button on it. I, yeah, I think it has its. I, it I think like it, very it has its own way. effect, yeah. and I want you to come up with it yourself. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to. I don't want to put it in a nutshell. All right, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um, uh, I'll tell you what. You know what gets me about it, though. Yeah. And this is different from my thought of it. The actual physical physicality is. It's very touching. When you see Sharon. Show up there, and you see her from above, and you see her kind of hug Rick, and, it, and we're very happy for Rick that, like, you know, it's like the gates of the Emerald City have opened up, and he, he's ex, he's he's invited, uh, and the fact that no one really quite understands the implications of what just happened, I, I, I like that. But what puts it pushes me over the edge emotionally is when I see Abigail walk out there with that little robe yeah. of hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a strange way, she's become quite iconic in that little robe in a very short amount of time, okay. and so there's something about seeing. Uh, uh, the the four survivors, yeah, all there with Rick. But there's something about Abby stepping out in the robe that pushes me over the edge every time I see oh, it. Oh man! Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Sharon's voice coming through on the intercom. Oh, I know, I know. that gets well. me too. Yeah, it's, uh, and because uh, the, the way and I'm sure you've you know you've talked to people mm-hmm. about this in the past already. Uh, the use of Sharon in this movie is very interesting. Yeah. The, the film is very much focused on on Rick and yeah. on Cliff, and we get these glimpses of Sharon and mm-hmm. uh, going around almost a day in the life. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, exactly what it is. Exploration yeah. of, of Sharon. Uh, otherwise, she's she's not on the periphery of the film because mm-hmm. she's very much a part of the film, but she's almost there as an ideal in a way. For well, the, for it's, the, uh, well, well, it's a combination. It's a it's a double combination. On one hand, she's an ideal. All right. On one hand, she's an ideal. On one hand, she's a symbol. On one hand, she's this walking, talking sun sunbeam. That is kind of sounds like how she kind of was to some degree or another. And you know, but there is a, a, an aspect of she's she's representing something. Mm. You know, there's almost she's almost like a a, a, a friendly ghost. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, haunting the movie, but in a lovely way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that's one hand. To me, the other hand is she's less of a literary character Mm -hmm. that an actor is playing to get at an inner truth, which Mm -hmm. I I guess is the difference between what what most people think of when they think of characters, especially a literary character. And she's more of an actress playing a real person, Mm -hmm. doing real person things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so she's not so much a character as she's, it's like she's an ideal and a representation of the life that was actually lived. Yeah. But without trying to put her inside of melodrama. Yeah. Absolutely. Or have her be a, a, a chess piece on a board that is ultimately playing to a plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what the game of a chess yeah. would be. Yeah, absolutely. There is no plot to where she, what she does. Yeah. Um, you know, conceivably... The things that you see her doing, running errands, taking a walk, folding clothes, listening to records, uh, uh, talking to her friends, just kind of doing her day, driving around, listening to the radio, you know, doing her stuff. That's her living life, which is what the Manson family stole from her. Yeah. Which is what she was denied. And even the idea that uh, most people... I mean, most people, what they th- when they think about Sharon, they think about the tragedy of her ending. Yeah. 
I mean, she's almost been defined. She has been defined. She has been defined, she has been defined yeah. by the tragedy of her ending. So I thought there was something special about just seeing her live life. Yeah. Because that is what was taken from her. That's lovely. And also as well, when she goes to see the Wrecking Crew, you're, that's, that's, well, that's one effect. of my favorite sequences in, in, yeah. in the movie. And that was actually, it's also one of those weird sequences that's kind of hard for a studio to get, get behind. Well, why are we watching this? All right. And one of the best things about Khan is so many critics said that that was one of their favorite things. And, and, and so all of a sudden, I wasn't bugged by that. <laughs> People weren't bugging me anymore about that sequence. But you also choose to use the real Sharon. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. You didn't recast that or re- reshoot that with, with Margot. No, no. I, I thought it was I mean, one of the things that I really... I mean, The, the Wrecking Crew is, is a, a beyond ass nine movie. Uh, and I'm a big fan of <laughs> Phil Carlson, the director. I'm not a fan of his... Matt Helm movies particularly, all right? Uh, yeah, but okay. I, but I, I like Phil Carlson. He did Walking Tall. It's a great movie. Uh, um, <laughs> But um, but I saw that movie when it came out. I saw it in 1969. I saw it at the Garfield Theater in San Gabriel. Wow. Um, and you know, when I was a kid, I thought it was very funny. I really, really liked it a lot. But one of the things about the movie that I love, I mean, there's that there's that moment in the uh, when you see her outside the theater and you see her looking at the poster and mm-hmm. seeing her name and looking at the yeah, lobby yeah. cards and stuff. I'm just. You know, I'm like five or six when I saw the movie. So naturally, a, a pretty girl like Sharon, who's a klutz and who's funny and is doing all this funny stuff. Of course, she's my favorite character in the movie. I had no idea who the hell she was. So I remember actually walking and it was a very in the Garfield Theater it was actually not drastically different from the Bruin, yeah. at least as far as their their patio. On the yeah. outside was. So before my we went to the car, I actually walked to the poster to see who played Mrs. Carlson. Miss <laughs> Carlson. Who played Miss Carlson. And I saw her thing. And her name is Sharon Tate. And I, I started because she was my favorite character. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. The last gag yeah. is hysterical. Have you seen it? No. I've never the seen last it. gag is, is hysterical. Now you can now kind of see how they did it. But I mean, it brought the house down <laughs> when I was uh, a kid. And it's just, it's her just being a klutz at the very end. And it's just very... Very, very funny. So the thing about it is uh, um, I'd seen a bunch of her movies, but I was really taken with her her comic performance yeah. as Miss Carlson. And I thought she was a really lovely comedian. And so I thought there would be a really uh, you know, uh, it sounded like a bizarre thing. To, to me, I just always knew it would work. All right. And everyone else questioned it. And, and uh, I just figured it would work. Uh, one, because I actually thought Margot looked enough like her that we could pull it off. But I also thought there could be an interesting uh, people use the word meta a little bit too much nowadays, but uh, but 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 there, there there could be a thing on uh, of her watching Sharon, yeah. watching her, yeah, you know, all yeah. that kind of all that yeah, back absolutely. and forth. Because <laughs> the whole movie blurs the lines between mm-hmm. what's real, what's not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bounty Law isn't, but Lancer is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, right yeah. on. That's really interesting. Um, and and Cliff, in terms of the main character's interactions with the Manson family, mm-hmm. is interesting because uh, Sharon gets that one brief interaction with, with Charlie Manson. Which is based on truth, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He actually went to the house. Yeah, he actually yeah. went to the house. To finally, to, to, uh, Terry Melcher wasn't calling him back, so he actually, okay, I'm going to take matters in my own hands and visit the house. Yeah. And was there, was there something else? A friend of mine, a colleague of mine at Empire, Nick, uh, you showed him a little bit of the film mm-hmm. in the build-up to, uh, to, the, to the movie's release. And apparently he saw a glance between Charlie and Cliff on the roof. Was that, was that, was that in there at one point? No, yeah, that was in there. And I, and I, I dropped it out, out and... I, I kind of wonder to this day if I did the right thing, but um, Columbia really wanted me to keep it in. But it was one of those things where it was like part of the thing of guiding this movie was just knowing where the drama was, yeah, and keeping the current currentness of the drama uh, uh, 
in line with the audience's reaction. And it just seemed after that little brief moment, I should be going back to uh, uh, Rick for the scene with the little girl. Yeah. When I stayed there just a little bit longer to have Cliff and, and Charlie share their moment, it just seemed like I was five minutes behind the drama or three minutes behind the drama from that point on. Yeah. And uh, we can get away with that. But I just, it was, uh, it just, it just felt right. It didn't yeah. feel right because I'm not doing a thing where like one scene for Cliff, one scene for Rick, one scene for Sharon, <laughs> one scene for Rick, one scene for Cliff, one scene for Sharon. No, we actually, you know, when we're with Cliff, we'll follow him for 11 minutes, 12 yeah. minutes, 15 minutes. Yeah. All right. We'll be with Rick. We'll follow him for, you know, 11, 12, 13 minutes. Same thing with Sharon. We're in there with like a nice little chunk of time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And Cliff is interesting because Cliff is the... Uh, the the person who has the most interaction with with the Manson family, obviously, yeah. spam movie mm-hmm. ranch. But yeah, yeah. he's on the roof. He sees Charlie Manson yeah, yeah, pull yeah. up. Uh, can you talk about that and the fact that Rick doesn't have any interaction until obviously the, the very end? Mm-hmm. You decide to keep him away from from that and follow his own thread. Did Leo give you this question? To ask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it chagrins him to no end. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's listening in right now. He's, yeah, right. He'll be he's talking in. to you right now. Okay, ask yeah. him about why uh, <laughs> Rick doesn't have more to do with Charlie. <laughs> um, well, it's just the way, yeah, it, I, yeah it, it, it's, well, it, it actually fits into kind of the, a lot of the themes of the movie. I mean, there, there was no, without, doing yoga like limbo all right to get rick involved with the manson family there wasn't it didn't organically present itself that way you know he gets dropped off on the set and that's that uh and you're you're with him but it actually fits into a lot of the things that we're doing because um i i you know one of the you know um two things that a a thread a, a dramatic thread that i think has fallen through all a lot of my movies and I can really only say this now because yeah, I've never been purposely trying to put them in, but now that I've done enough of them, I can look and see is one, um, taking acting or taking the life of an actor and applying it to other things that other human beings do in real life, mm-hmm. you know, starting with, uh, uh, detective Holdaway teaching mm-hmm. Mr. Orange how to be an actor, yeah, right? yeah. you know, to be a successful undercover cop. Yeah. And I think that kind of performer in real life, keeps playing there's a there's there's usually some point in one of my movies where a character pretends to be somebody they're not yes and whether or not they can pull that off usually life and death is usually involved in that situation i mean it just keeps happening again and again and again most of the hateful eight for example yeah 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 exactly (laughs) uh um but then also um there is duality there is duality kind of going on in in my movies where it's like uh, two characters or two set of characters will kind of end up going through the same dramatic paces, except they all, they'll have different outcomes. Yeah. And and almost the duality of it is almost the point of it, mm-hmm. whether it be the one group of girls in Death Proof versus the other group of girls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In death proof. And um, and in both of those cases, like literally almost the exact same things happen in, in different guises to all of them, except just the outcome is different. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never had a better situation that is more dramatically set up than a heroic Western actor, TV actor and his stunt double, mm. where it is the idea that. The actor is pretending to be a hero. His job as an actor, and he and he's a heroic actor. He's not playing weird little 
uh, character roles are yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, weird idiosyncratic characterizations. No, he's a hero. He puts yeah. on a hat and he sh- rides horses and he shoots guns. He's a lantern jawed leading man. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what he is. And uh, right, you know, unfortunately, right when that is seeming passe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is, though, is that's his job. He walks down Western sets and he confronts either, if he's the bad guy, he confronts the hero in this uh, dramatic way or he confronts the villain in this dramatic way. And he always comes out unscathed. Yeah. Uh, where when things get really hairy, then you put Cliff in. Yes. And he takes a, and he takes the, the punishment. He takes the abuse. He's the one that takes the risks. He's the one who pays for Rick's heroics. Now, that was back in the salad days when everything was fine. But now it's playing out in a different way. I mean, if you think about it, during the course of that Sunday, both Rick and Cliff walked down Western towns mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> True. and yeah. face dangerous opponents Yes, <laughs> and don't miss a beat. Yeah. The difference is when Cliff is facing his opponent, Tex Watson, he's facing one of the most famous killers of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that actually makes me very happy like I said about that whole thing about like, the character that can that uh, you know that is dramatically perishable at that moment, is it seems like I've set Cliff up to be completely indestructible. So the fact that by the time we get to Spawn Ranch and it's just a bunch of girls hanging out there and you're still scared for Cliff, <laughs> all right, just shows that oh wow, I think I I, I think I did uh, 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 the mise en scène of uh, Spawn Ranch is is correct. You mentioned there the, the scene with Trudy Fraser, the little, the little girl. I love that. Uh, uh, Rick's breakdown, the, uh, yeah. the easy breezy story. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Is really interesting. It's pretty much all one take, too, from the moment, like, wait before he even starts telling the easy breezy story. That's all one take. Oh, wow. And that wasn't because I, I shot at a bunch of different angles. It was just that take ended up just kept holding. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Was that yeah. something that, that came to, was that just organic in terms of the, the parallels between Easy Breezy and Rick, then his discovery of that? And Oh, uh, gosh, that was interesting. Yeah, I know. Uh, 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 um, I'm sure when I started writing the Easy Breezy story, I knew where I was going to go with it. All right. Um, but the organic part was just inventing Trudy at all. I think Trudy was actually the last character I came up with. I've been, oh, really? you know, I've been working on this story for a while. So like in between each movie, I would like, you know, uh, was this Silifus or Sisyphus? The guy who's, yeah, uh, who's pushing the rock yep. up the hill. All right. You know, so every time uh, in between each movie, like starting from Death Proof on, all right, I would just work a little bit more on it and just move the rock up the hill and just figure I'd stop at a certain point and then pick up the next thing. And then after Hateful Eight, I started doing that again. And then all of a sudden I just went past where I normally went and I realized, oh, shit, I'm going to finish this. This is the, this is the time. So I've been waiting for the chicken to come out of the or the egg to come out of the incubator. Well, I guess this is the time. <laughs> and so now writing the piece in earnest and trying to get to an ending, the last character I came up with was Trudy. And I think I came up with that scene. And I was like, wow, that's terrific. I really like that. I was really, really into it. And then I was sort of like, a, a, um, uh, then I had to kind of almost re- re-engineer the rest of the drama so that could fall in right in the middle and so she could have a right right spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting because she has a, a positive impact on Rick. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's intriguing to me that he, you actually show, you go out of your way to show in these long takes, mm-hmm. and especially that bit at the end with Evil Hamlet, yeah, yeah. that <laughs> he is a good actor. Yeah. Uh-huh. That yeah. he's not just a joke. Yeah. Well, you know, the a lot of the actors that I based Rick on at the end of the day, I really 
like them. And I think, you know, part of the poignancy of some of them is if things had been different, if they had caught a lucky break, or, you know, they could be sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a different situation, whether it be Tab Hunter or George Maharis or Ed yeah. Cookie Burns or, uh, uh, you know, a lot of guys, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Ty Harden. Uh, and um, they didn't get the flashy role in the John Sturgis epic, <laughs> The Great Escape, to set them up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I wish we had time to talk about that. However, well. though, I, I think there is this aspect, though. Uh, one of the things about putting Rick in The Great Escape is McQueen's ultimately better for the role. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, Rick does a good job, but I, I, I would I would cast McQueen. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Although, you know, Leo on a motorbike, that would have been pretty cool. That yeah, would, yeah, that yeah. Pretty cool. We're not talking about Leo. We're talking about Rick. Rick, Rick, I, might, Rick I, I might cast Leo Rick. in The Great Escape. Yes, of course. <laughs> so many layers, Quentin. Yeah, so right. many layers to get through. But I imagine Rick Dalton is a character that, you know, is an actor that you might have cast in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, absolutely. No, I could. No, I, I could actually see. Uh, well, let me think about that for a second, actually. So, okay. Uh, 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 so Rick is in his forties, mm-hmm. uh, in 69. So, I mean, the part he would be right for would be Joe. <laughs> Actually, no, I think Lawrence Cheney was pretty, <laughs> yeah. might have been a better choice. And then real quick, cause, uh, uh someone's going to kill me if I don't ask this, uh, Tim Roth brackets cuts. Yeah. What's, what's the story there? Oh, he played, uh, um, oh, he just didn't make the cut. All right. But he's part of the gang and I appreciated him, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, showing up and, and being due to giving his due diligence service. All right. Um, uh, he was uh, Jay Sebring's uh, uh, British butler. Okay. His British gentleman's gentleman. Just, just it, a walk on, walk off. Uh, it's pretty funny. No, it was a funny little sequence, but it got oh, dropped. Man. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, fantastic. Quentin, I could talk to you all day about this movie and indeed your other movies, but I'd like to go. It's Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thanks for seeing the movie twice in 24 hours. That's uh, <laughs> beyond the call of the duty. It's, it's all I can think of at the moment. It's, it's in my head and there I shall stay. I, I've had those feelings with the movies before and it's always a good feeling to have. <laughs> fantastic. Cheers, cool. man. Thank you. All right. So that was Quentin Tarantino. And uh, there's still a lot to get into in terms of this movie. Uh, but first of all, let's, let's go around the table. I've got some listener questions as well. We might get into those in due course. But let's go around the table and, and kind of establish where we are. Are we all Tarantino fans? Where, where do we stand on this movie in terms of his oeuvre, his nine or ten film oeuvre in? Well, I, I, re- I reviewed it for the Mac and I gave it four stars. So you and, hated it then? Yeah, I, I kind of think it's... Mid on the on the first viewing, I kind of think it's middle order Tarantino. I just felt that you know it's a film about a man who's kind of uh, at, at the end of his career, or he sees like the edge of his talent, and he's worrying about he's a, he's a man out of time, and he can see a new generation sort of coming up behind him. And that was a hard relate for me. I kind of got that. <laughs> I think. <laughs> that, did you not make the point that it's a bit less quotable than your average Tarantino? I thought so. Yeah. Um, that might be true, although I have started calling cars mechanical assholes, right. which is a nice line. Yeah. But gen- generally, there isn't... I, d- I just thought there's loads of brilliant things in it, loads of great performances, loads of great scenes, lots of funny moments, lots of motifs. But for me, when I think of Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir Dogs isn't a difficult film to follow, mm. but you have to follow it. This one, I thought you could wander around for 10 minutes, come back, and you'd still catch up with it, you'd still get it. So I, it's a kind of hangout movie, and, and, it, and it has the pleasures of that, but it, didn't, it doesn't feel as essential as some of these other things to me. You could argue that you could cut the first day, and you could still have the same movie, okay. I think. I don't think you need the Pacino stuff necessarily. I really enjoy it, but you could cut all of that first day and just have it the two days. 
I think. Just yeah. the Sunday and, and it would still uh, function. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering why they were shooting on Sunday. Is that is was that normal back in the day? Where was it normal to shoot your guest stars on a Sunday? Maybe yes. <laughs> it was it was weird. Yeah, yeah, and they kind of suggested that Cliff works on Sundays as well. So mm. seven day a week seven gig. Day. Well, you know oh, I can, that I can believe actually because yeah. mm. it's kind of half hanging, half yeah. working. Nope. Um, I'm not as much of a Tarantino uh, nutter. Stan. Stan. I'm not. That's the word. That is the word. Actually, I'm not as much of a Tarantino stan as many in this magazine. I think it's fair to say. Um, I I admire him enormously. I admire his films. They do not live in my heart. I do not know if any of them would be in my top 100 of all time. Actually, I admire them. I just they're not mine. So please bear that in mind when I say that this is probably my favorite of all of his films. Holy shit. This is your 101st greatest film of all time. (laughs) Why do you say that, Hal? Um, Because I really enjoyed the atmosphere. And I know I 100% agree with you. It is a hangout movie. It is, it lacks any real sense of urgency apart from about a five minute period towards the end. Um, And maybe the bit on the ranch. There's, there's a a, a tension. There's real tension. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but generally speaking, I, I really enjoyed the hangout. I really enjoyed the feeling of uh, a bygone era brought to life. I really liked the sense I got from this film, as with Hail Caesar, of simultaneously thinking that movies are the most important thing in the world and thinking they're faintly ridiculous. And, <laughs> and do you know what I mean? I, and I feel like both of those films, which are otherwise completely unlike, yeah. I think both films do that really, really well. Um, and that I really, really dug. One thing I loved about it is that it's a film about the Dream Factory, yet it feels like they're his most real people. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. all the films, are, the, all the other nine, eight films, whatever you want to call I'd it. I'd say Jackie Brown maybe yeah. comes the closest to having Yeah, but a lot of the times they, they don't, they feel like, it's, they don't feel like real people. It's like Jackie Brown in, in the sense that it's about losers. It's about, you know, the people who haven't made it necessarily. Mm. You know, whereas maybe in, in Pulp Fiction you've got these very, very cool characters who have swagger and these guys don't necessarily have, Cliff does. Cliff but he's still a bit of a loser. Like he goes oh, home yeah. to I mean, his that, caravan, that's has caravan. macaroni and cheese. Yeah, that, that caravan is, is horrific. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, if he wasn't Brad Pitt, wearing a all-white denim suit for a night out would be unforgivable. Um, he's Brad Pitt, so he can do that. But like, that's not a thing that a human being should attempt. I think it's after Labor Day as well. I mean, you don't wear white after Labor I Day. Might do and that's a Saturday night as well. I mean... That's a Saturday night. That is a high level of difficulty. That's what that mm. is. I mean, it's quite similar to my Saturday nights. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's his most fun film for a while. I think it's, it's just him having fun. You know, it ends with Adam West and the Batman song. <laughs> yeah. Just like, and it's, it's, um, it's skits as well. It it's goes off on little segues, some of which I didn't love as, man, as much as others. But overall, I, I, I really liked it. It's a mood piece. Uh, I really loved all the driving stuff. Like, I wanted more yeah. driving, just listening to the radio. With, you know, it's just Great so music. cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird how watchable those driving scenes are. And it is also very... I think it's more compassionate than most of his films. That's not a word I would particularly associate with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And yeah. This felt very, very compassionate, especially at the end, giving us a sense of hope for mm-hmm. Rick in a weird way. You know, he's yeah. kind of he's in with the in crowd. He's getting to go and hang with them for a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. If they are the in crowd, I don't. I'm not sure. The uh, film is kind of on the fence about they're that. They're fairly in crowdy, I would they're, say. They're yeah. inner yeah. than than yeah. Rick they, at that point. Anyone is inner than Rick, <laughs> <laughs> even after his four stint, uh, four yeah. film stint. This, yeah, I mean, it in, posits in that, Europe. you know, maybe uh, Rick could have uh, starred in Chinatown in this version of history. Whoa. I was thinking about, you know, how could this have impacted Hollywood history? I don't know. But it's, <laughs> it's fun to kind of think about. Wow. But yeah, I, I think that's true. I think this is the most optimistic 
maybe even romantic uh, Quentin Tarantino film. I don't think he's got a rom-com in him <laughs> somehow. No. I don't know, but I'd love to see it if he, if he did. I think this is a romantic rewriting of history, even more so than killing Hitler at the end of Glorious Bastards because Hitler died anyway. Mm. Um, it was heading in that direction anyhow. Yeah. But here, as he said in the interview, that this was about saving Sharon Tate for him. That was the idea. He had this kind of idea, this hangout, this buddy this buddy dynamic between between Rick and Cliff already. But then the idea of actually being audacious enough to save Sharon Tate and the other four people who died that night, there were five people who died in total mm-hmm. uh, at the uh, at the uh, the Polanski-Tate household. It, it reminded me an awful lot of the plot development in Yesterday, where Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis contrived to keep John Lennon alive as well, where you're so appalled by the turn that history has taken and killing these innocent people. It's a spoiler special spoiler for yesterday special as well. For yesterday, I'm yeah. sure we'll spoiler special Avengers Endgame at some point. That's what we do. <laughs> it's all we do. Um, so yes, spoiler special for yesterday, by the way, <laughs> if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. But um, I'm sure you've read it in, the, in Empire Magazine, That's right? True, I had. Yeah, okay, there you go. And uh, it felt to me this was a similar, almost kind of altruistic gesture mm-hmm. from him giving Sharon Tate in particular back to the world. I think this is Tarantino, the movie fan, and Tarantino, for maybe for the first time, the kind of the, the, the generosity of spirit in him giving mm. something back to the world and giving this this wonderful potential uh, alternate future. And, it, and it's not just the movies as well. It's, it's the whole knock-on effect of the way that those murders changed the sort of the psyche in Hollywood. I mean, I've, I've, you know, if you read biographies, like everybody talks about that night yeah. as a night that changed them. Loads of people talk about they drove past my house. Loads of people mm-hmm. talk about they were going to come for me next. You know, you've cu- yeah. you, you come across all of these stories. Everybody felt touched by it personally because it's such a small town. And, and again, that's just almost that sort of psychological shift in what might have happened if that hadn't also occurred. I don't necessarily think this, but do you, do you understand why people would think this is just bad taste? Mm. Yeah, but I... I, When when it was announced, I was really uncomfortable with it. I thought this is what he was going to do when this was announced. I thought that there, in some way, Rick and Cliff were going to save Sharon Tate. I thought that's what he was going to do. I didn't know how he was going to do it. And as the film unfolded, I have to say, it was a really, really uncomfortable first watch for me because I didn't know where he was going with it. And as he begins to sort of break the movie down, the third act, into an almost forensic, and again, I'll repeat myself in the Tarantino interview, but that almost forensic true crime mm. uh, approach. Yeah, yeah where yeah. Kurt Russell's narrating it almost minute by minute. And uh, while Rick and Cliff were over here being idiots, Sharon Tate was doing this with her pals and she was going for dinner and then she came home and you're thinking, oh God, what's he, do- what's he doing? Is he building up to this thing where they're murdered horribly while Rick and Cliff are just oblivious because they're stoned and drunk and they don't... They don't see it. They don't hear it. Is, it. is it going to be that? And then he goes the way he went, which meant the second time around I was able to fall into the film's fold a little more and I was able to soak up his, his fives a little more and enjoy it a little more because the end is cathartic. It's meant to be cathartic. It's meant to be these utter shits. And if you read about what they did, oh, yeah. my God. you, you came, I remember you coming out of the, 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 the cinema the first time we saw it, Helen. You were like, if you... You know, read what they did. It's horrific, yeah. and so they get what's theirs. And in a in a really weird sense, it is comedic and it's meant to be cathartic and it's awful uh, and maybe even gratuitous. But you're it's meant to so share unco- it. I find uncomfortable watching it. I just thought watching that girl repeatedly get her face smashed in. Yeah, was horrible. Mm. I actually yeah. didn't weirdly just because of the violence of the crimes and the violence of what the real life 
woman did. I, I don't, you know, it didn't feel like, you know, a big strong man picking on an innocent or a, someone who wasn't able to defend themselves. It felt like somebody stopping a, a complete nut job. It, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it is kind of played for laughs. And I saw it yesterday for the second time with an audience and people are laughing. And then there comes a point where everyone stops laughing because yeah. the violence, he, yeah. Brad Pitt, when he just starts smashing the head, like he does it three times. Yeah. And then yeah. he could have stopped there. Any other filmmaker would, I think, have stopped there. And he carries on. And I, 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 th- there is a tonal shift, and I wonder if that's deliberate. It felt deliberate to me. Of course, yeah, it's absolutely. Oh, yeah. He, doesn't want, he wants you to laugh, and then you start laughing again because yeah. the flamethrower comes I think out. Cliff is like that all the way through. Mm. By the way, before we get on to that, I should go back to the early point where I started talking about that because I don't think there's been a backlash about keeping Sharon Tate alive, or if there has, I haven't no. seen it. No, and, and her sister was very supportive of yeah. the script in yeah. the film and yeah. her portrayal. Exactly the same thing happened because I because uh, remember again we're spoiling yesterday here, but I remember when I first spoke to Danny Boyle a couple months ago before the film came out, he said there's something that happens that I think will piss off a lot of Beatles fans, and as far as I can tell, that hasn't pissed off yeah. no. any Beatles fans because they're like, oh, it's beautiful, it's, it's great, John Lennon's alive, and you know, screw yeah. Mark Chapman and all that stuff, and let's move on. And I feel the same thing here, but I also think that Cliff, who is mainly the sort of angel of death for the for the Manson family members in this movie is a really what Tarantino's doing with him is really really interesting in that he's clearly the coolest character in the movie he's laconic he's laid back he's Brad Pitt looks great with his shirt off looks great with his shirt on looks Did great he? in white I denim didn't notice. did you notice? no I didn't my wife noticed <laughs> <laughs> I know that much and uh, kind of why don't you look like Brad Pitt it's beyond me. <laughs> it is beyond. There's never been a point in my life where I could have looked like that. Anyway. Um, you look like Brad Pitt's stuntman. I, I'm not even sure I do. <laughs> Cliff I think I look like Paul Giamatti's stuntman. <laughs> anyway. But he's uh, he's this really cool character that you're meant to root for. But he does a thing where he, and I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Tarantino about this, he does a thing where he heavily implies that he did kill his wife. Oh, yeah. And so you're yeah. asking yourself, Am I meant to be rooting for this guy? How but, complicit well, am I in what, what's going on here? Yeah, I I think, well, first of all, in, in terms of the death of, of his wife, so what we're showing is clearly meant to lead up to, at the very least, manslaughter. And he has that line to Bruce Lee about, well, that's manslaughter, you go to jail yeah. for that anyway. So, you know, at the very least, it's an accidental death that is due to his accidental action. But it clearly seems a little bit less than 100% accidental. I think that's what we're meant to take from it. And I think we are maybe meant to draw some conclusions from that. Mm. But I think that's that's the point of a lot of Tarantino's characters, uh, you know, and a lot of Tarantino's films over the years, and that he he has that relationship with the audience where he just pushes you in the in the in yeah. the just as far as you can go and maybe even then a little bit yeah. further. And he's he's been doing that since Reservoir Dogs. But, but I think is Cliff atoning for then is his saviour a Sharon and then No. Well then, I d- mm. I, I don't think he is because he's not. No, I don't I, he doesn't so. know that he's saving Sharon Tate. He just he doesn't even know who these people are or what they want. He just knows that people have come into his house. He is literally tripping balls at the time. Yeah. So that also may affect things. But I th- I think it's a re- I think he is a really interesting character in that respect. And I think this question is a really interesting part of what makes him a really interesting character because it, there's the, that throwaway reference to him being a war hero. There's. Uh, Rick talking about you can do anything you want to him, throw him off a building, you know. Hit him with a Lincoln. Hit him with a Lincoln. He'll thank you for that. Yeah. He'll, uh, so all of that kind of implies a guy who is like extraordinarily physical, like extraordinarily uh, maybe adrenaline junkie. The way he drives when he's in the car alone compared to where anyone else is, is with him, mm. that is an adrenaline junkie. That is a dangerous person. That is a person without some normal. Great shout. Yeah. Yeah. Screw. yeah. 
yeah. right on. But he's also this kind of really laid back, really charming, really outwardly happy character the yeah. whole time. And it feels like one of these people who is sublimating every single negative emotion that he has yeah. into these occasional acts of violence. And otherwise... Is just like yeah, totally calm. Yeah. He's like a solar exactly. panel, isn't he? He's just yeah. storing it up constantly. Yeah. There's some interesting yeah. contradictions with the character because at one point he says, "I've never been to prison. They've been trying to get me into prison yeah. all my life." And then about 20 minutes later, when he gets to the ranch, he mentions being on a chain gang yeah. for breaking a cop's jaw. So he contradicts himself there. And then this is either a mistake or a deliberate thing, but his flashback with the Bruce Lee thing. Mm. There's a big billboard for the film Tora Tora Tora, and if you look at when Green Hornet was shooting. That was like a few years, like five years before yeah. that film came out. Mm. So that doesn't jibe with that scene. There, there was a suggestion that that was a um, that that whole scene with Bruce Lee was a fantasy. Yeah, yeah, it feels know. that way because there's a flashback. He's on the roof. Yeah, he has the his shirt off. Yeah, yeah. Does he? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> you notice. hadn't noticed. Yeah. Uh, then he has a sort of flashback to uh, being fired off the set of the Green Hornets with the fight with Bruce Lee and that might suggest why that mm. fight is a draw because it's his recollection yeah, or it's his, I, I it's his fantasy uh, but within that then we have the flashback to the potential thing the with the wife flashback, yeah. 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 But I was watching the Bruce Lee scene yesterday with the yeah. mind of is this a fantasy and it didn't feel like it like no. it goes back to him and he goes fair enough yes that's that's the thing that, yeah. that, that doesn't the feel like a daydream well. that feels like yeah. he's remembering something but do we think it's offensive I, I, I read a lot of stuff that it's problematic yeah, I think this is this is another interesting discussion. I've 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 heard it from both sides from Asian Americans. So I think that the concern is um, that not so much that the portrayal of the character was wildly inaccurate. I've seen some people say that's totally who he was. That he was understandably cocksure, cocksure to the point of arrogance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that he could be kind of you know aggressive and kind of start things. Um, I don't I don't know enough about Bruce Lee. I'll be honest to know if that, how true yeah. that is. It's kind of deflating his legend, which which I think people, so real people, Bruce Lee fans have got upset about. They were upset the fact that he got served by Brad Pitt. Yeah, and just right. the way he's portrayed as, as you know, he's peacocking around. Mm. And, and then by the end of it, he looks quite small. You know, when he, when Zoe Bell turns up, he, he kind of looks like a little boy almost. And I, I think because his image is so, he's the coolest man on I earth. Think, I think the moment when, when she turns up, what he seems to be outraged about is the idea that she's telling Brad Pitt off for hitting him rather than the opposite. And he's yeah. very anxious to get out the fact that he was not losing the fight. It's like two, it's like two kids at school when the teacher yeah, comes is, in, yeah. which is really funny. But, but, but Tarantino does the same thing with Steve McQueen, and the Steve McQueen, mm. you know, you've got the coolest movie star hero, but then he, he's a bit of a sad sack, and he's, you know, he wants the girl and he can't get her. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of deflating these legends. Yeah, I think, so I, think, I think there was a bit of that. But I think what, what was interesting about this... Um, Bruce Lee in particular is that a lot of people picked up on the fact that it's the audience reaction when he starts speaking yeah. that's most disturbing. So it's not so much Tarantino's racism in Yeah, I read that. In, did that in happen Bruce in your Lee? I saw it on my own no. pretty much. So the, did you... the first time I saw it with an audience, there was there were right. titters when he starts speaking. Really? Yeah. Brad Pitt did say in an interview that originally uh, Bruce Lee lost the fight. Obviously it's a draw, mm. as is, but apparently Brad Pitt had a word with Tarantino and they rewrote it slightly. But Mike Moe, by the way, is amazing uh, as Bruce Lee. Yeah. And the whole scene is done as one shot which is amazing if you actually watch the camera work. It's really, really impressive. Yeah. Until, until we get hit into the car. Yeah. 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 But there's like five minutes of pretty amazing filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of 
pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's about <laughs> two <laughs> hours, 14. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, in, yeah, that's a, technically, I yeah. think that's the yeah. most impressive bit of the film. And Robert Richardson is the man, the cinematographer, he's the man of the match, isn't he? He is, he's right. just, <laughs> beautiful, yeah. beautiful. It was Lovely amazing. assist from Richardson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and whoever had to clear all the music yeah. and jingles. Yeah, that's that a, oh, yeah, hats off yeah. to that. That's amazing, Absolutely. yeah. I didn't feel there was maybe I've I've seen it once so maybe you guys have seen it more and and you'll know more Mm. but I didn't think there was a killer tune that you come out thinking oh I've had that I've had Neil Diamond's um, what's it brother um, brother loves traveling salvation I'm getting the name wrong but I've had that tune stuck in my head for two months now or something it was in the one of the trailers uh and there's a perfume jingle i've had stuck in my head oh yeah it's for is it heavenly heaven heavenly or heaven sent or heaven something sense, it's, so, yeah, it's so catchy yeah. i can't right. get that out of my head it's brilliant okay i, I guess so it's more of a, a juke it's more of a jukebox mm. approach to the soundtrack than he's perhaps yeah, done before rather than those big kind of moments yeah of, you know stuck in the middle with you it's in the background or... isn't a lot of songs are in the background yeah and stuff. what was um, the one over the actual death scene because that was when the man's family breaking because that i remember loving and i have a terrible memory from music right. So it's already gone out of my head. I'm I, terrible. I, I quite enjoyed the fact that Ruth Franklin's uh, the house that Jack built plays as he as he pulls up to his trailer. Yeah, um, because it's just the contrast of you know it's not even a built house. What I will say is, if you want to listen, uh, if you want to hear more about the music of this movie, and you want to hear more Tarantino, then Edith Bowman recorded an episode mm. of her soundtracking right. podcast, yeah. uh, where Tarantino talks about his song choices and goes through it. I haven't heard it yet, but I imagine it's a fantastic episode of a very good podcast. So do check that one out. Yeah. If I, you have I was, was exciting that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was singing "Green Door," which, if you're British, is essentially shaking Stevens. Isn't oh, it? Yes. <laughs> the song over the uh, over the end of the movie is the the Manson attack. Is Vanilla Fudge's "You Keep Me Hanging." on yeah. which Tarantino yes. did his own edit of going to the Playboy Mansion um, they played that song Hush Hush so yes. they co- covered it in the early Cooler Shaker covered it Cooler yeah. Shaker yeah. Um, it's Deep Purple I believe yes so I quite, I, I've always been quite fond of the original of that yeah that was good. I Out of Time as well which felt mm. More on the nose than you might imagine. Some of the tunes were. Some of the tunes were quite on the nose. I have to say. Yeah. We are family. Yeah, I should have got that. Yeah. I haven't got the soundtrack yet. I should. Uh, is it a? Uh, is it out? I mean, is it a? Uh, on Spotify. Triple LP. Yeah, and it's got all the radio jingles and ends oh with my Batman. God. It's oh amazing. Right. I've, I've had it on quite a bit. Because um, Tarantino is a big thing for me. He was a big thing for me at a formative point of my of my uh, youth. And the, the Reservoir Dog soundtrack was huge for me, just huge. Yeah. Can we talk about Sharon Tate? Of course we can. Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of things about that she hasn't got many lines. Yeah. And I don't necessarily feel that's a problem. No. I just feel that but acting's more about talking dialogue, isn't it? It is. And I don't, I honestly don't think that question was meant to imply otherwise. Yeah. But if you are. Like it was heavily talked about that Sharon Tate was a big part of the film. Margot mm. Robbie was very much sold as the female lead. She is right there with them on the poster, most of the posters anyway, mm. as a sort of co-equal lead. That is the sort of disconnect that I think people are talking about. Yeah. For the role that she plays in the film, she was oversold. The role she plays in the film, I think, is fine. It doesn't need more lines, no. but that is not a leading lady role. It is at best a supporting part. Yeah, Margaret Qualley has more yeah. lines and more presence. She's the girl who Brad Pitt picks uh, up. Pussy, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I just, I mean, I think it is, it's not, it's one of these things, it's always this stuff, which we talk about a lot, but like we talked about it with Black Widow. It's not a problem that they killed 
it's not a problem that they kill Black Widow it's a problem that it's always the girl who has to die so you know or it seems un- right. unjustly so sometimes it's not a problem that Sharon Tate doesn't have many lines it is a problem that so many female characters don't have many lines How- so it's not it's not in isolation mm-hmm. anything wrong with this but it is okay but sometimes we have to raise eyebrows at high profile cases to get yeah. other people to think about but it this, do you see why he's done that? What what is your feeling on why he did that? I think why... she doesn't need anything more to play the role that she has in the film, which is essentially an avatar of goodness and innocence. Yeah, but I like one for that example, puts her feet up on the oh my god, her feet, feet up on the chair. Feet could <laughs> lost fuck yeah. off. Honestly, but, <laughs> is, this because, is this because I got my feet up on the table right now? If you could yeah. just put your shoes on, I would uh, really appreciate it. But the problem I have is like somebody was. Uh, I was having a, a conversation with two journalists who I very much respect on Twitter. Name and, them. And, no, and one of them was saying. If she had more lines, she wouldn't work in that role. And that is where I draw the line because that is not the case. She can still be... <laughs> she could have more scenes and still work. She can still have more scenes and still work. And we not would another just Sharon be, Tate scene. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. But, the thing is, all we need, but the thing is, all anybody wants to say about her, all that he needs to say about her is that she was a good and a decent person mm-hmm. and, and she loved life. And, and how much know, drama is there in that? And how, how much drama is there in you know, that? Drama yeah. and is that's conflict and there's... Yeah. Exactly. There's and usually conflict in the, in the Rick and Cliff scenes, whether, yeah. whether they're together or whether Rick is on on his own slowly yeah. disintegrating or whether Cliff is heading off to the Manson family ranch and you know giving the impression that either exactly. he's going to die or that he'll just punch all 15 of them yeah. <laughs> straight out so maybe the, the Sharon scenes don't really have that having said that the trailers and the TV spots do hint at things that were cut from the film and mm. again this is <laughs> I wish I had two hours of Tarantino guys you know there's a scene clearly that scene where she picks up the hitchhiker there's a couple of shots from her inside her car where she's talking to someone in the TV I spots, think shots, I think that's there's images of her in a swimming pool as well. Images at the yeah. uh, Playboy Mansion, I think yeah. that's where you yeah. know. The, Everybody's in a swimsuit at the Playboy Mansion. Never been. I know I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you guys see the fake Wikipedia plot summary that that went up after Cannes? And it was up for a while, but it was totally um, like not true. The synopsis and and it was basically the Manson family do go to Sharon's house. But Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen turn up. Oh, come on! And help fight them off. Actually, sounds awesome. I, mean, I, totally I was expecting Steve McQueen to turn up. But the first time I saw it, I was expecting Steve McQueen to turn up in some way at the end. I don't know why. Just because it was such a short yeah. scene, I was like, "It's got to be more." It is. He's really good, by the way, Damien Lewis. Yeah. Was, um, yeah. I didn't. I didn't put that connection together when he was cast. I was like, Damien Lewis, no. Steve McQueen, yeah. really? And then you kind of watch him. You're like, Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, oh, Damien yeah. Lewis is Steve McQueen. I would have liked to see Damien Lewis play that Steve McQueen down a bit that's, <laughs> a, that's a smart thought yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah, that's brilliant that scene that is yeah, so, really so charming that scene <laughs> yeah. that's so great the studio must have tried to get him to chop that because <laughs> he's talked he's talked a bit about yeah. they, they tried to um, get him to lose the scene where Sharon goes to the cinema mm. to watch herself and you can kind yeah. of you know it doesn't push the plot forward at all but there must have been tussles because yeah. it yeah. was originally four and a half hours long wow. but it's interesting how he didn't put shoot that with with Margot her? Robbie, yeah. he puts the actual yes. Sharon Tate. Yeah. Is, is Sharon? Yeah. It's Margot Robbie watching Sharon Tate, yeah. doesn't y- it? Yeah, it would have been funny if the lady behind the box office still thought, "No, that's not you." That's <laughs> <a bit different." laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think that was a, meant as a deliberate tribute, and I think that's going yeah. back to this idea great of yeah. trying to do yeah. right by 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 the real yeah. Sharon Tate very much. Well, one thing I want to say about Tarantino's female characters, which I thought the best character in the movie was uh, Julia Butters playing this precocious. <laughs> young Meryl Streep-esque actor, actor I thought she was terrific mm. so great yeah. for her two scenes yeah. just absolutely rips it apart well that's proper that's the most Tarantino thing in the film to me it's mm. original writing that you wouldn't get anywhere else I thought Margaret Qualley was astonishing 
as well yeah. as, as Pussycat, who Cliff picks up. That's an amazing yeah. performance. She's great in that. Well, many people know it. She's Andy McDowell's daughter. Yeah, yeah this is a genuine and question. Like, is it... Was it it's a another thing I didn't ask Tarantino. Sorry, was what it the deliberate... fuck did I ask him? <laughs> was it a deliberate choice to have so many Hollywood yeah. sons and daughters in this film? Yeah, I think it's about passing the torch, mm. isn't it? It's about generations superseding people which is kind of the theme of the mm. theme of the film, yeah. isn't it? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a big thing with Rick, and that's why I think it's again it's a lovely grace note at the end that he does allow Rick to temporarily at least. Here's the thing about Rick Dalton: you get a sense he's going to fuck it up somehow, but mm. yeah, <laughs> that you know. But he 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 gives him what what do they call it? An olive branch uh, in a way to the to the younger generation. That's really really nice because Rick is a man who is tortured by his own past. And I think in a weird way, that's almost what he's getting at with the casting of. So uh, Ethan Hawke, um, Maya Hawke, Ethan Hawke and yeah. Thurman's daughter is yeah. in this as well. Uh, Who else do you Ruma, have? Ruma Willis. Ruma Willis. Uh, Ruma Willis. Uh, Harley, Harley Quinn Smith yeah. is in it also. Yeah, yeah. Tarantino's talked about how these kind of these very manly actors in the 60s were supplanted by Michael Douglas and lots of other kind sure. of people yeah. who were... The children of yeah. movie stars, and they were all Kurt Russell's a, is yeah. a son himself of you know Bing Russell. Gorgeous so there's Robert. there's there's people in, but I think Rick is someone who's tortured by his own past, and he he almost invites it as well. What's fascinating is that uh, you look at Cliff's horrible caravan. I did wonder, I really did wonder about the dog. I like, do you really? Because he's been out all day, and that poor old dog's been in the trailer. And I hope it's getting the love and the affection. That it needs. I hope he has a dog walker there in his. I hope he has oil field in Van Nuys. I hope that there, yeah. I hope there's a an early version, an early 1969 version of BarmyDoggy.com, mm. and that someone's walking dear old Brandy every day. Otherwise, that dog isn't getting the lifestyle. Brandy's okay. But, She's biting but, nuts. She's having the time of her life. <laughs> she really is. <laughs> but you look at Cliff's caravan. You compare it to Rick's house, mm. and Rick isn't finding all these posters of himself from his heyday and he's almost torturing himself and you wonder why he's an alcoholic and why he screams at himself and it's interesting that in his driveway is a picture from uh, is a picture yeah. from a poster of one of his movies and it's if you look at it it's one of his it's I think horrifying. It's a Comanche movie and it's someone with their boot literally on Rick Dalton's face and that's I think sums up what he thinks of himself and that's maybe why he keeps it around yeah, I think it maybe it just made them laugh. Originally. I can see it making yeah. Cliff laugh anyway, and and Rick sort of going along with that in a weird way. Yes, but the yeah. I thought. I mean, I have to say, I'm not DiCaprio's biggest fan. Generally speaking, I, I again, I appreciate that he's great. I you can just, see the technique. I don't love him. He and tries. Doesn't I think he? he's phenomenal in this film. Yeah. I think yeah. he's so freaking good. The way he introduces that little stutter in bits where Rick is is uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah, the last and, time I yeah. you know. Um, uh, just isn't sure what he's doing. His, you know, virtually breaking down at the praise, not of the director, but of an eight-year-old, yeah. um, is just speaks <laughs> volumes as to how kind of confident he isn't. Um, he, again, almost breaking down at the beginning when the age, uh, his uh, Pacino basically explains why his yeah. career is on the skids. Um, I just think there's so much there. And I do like that... Again, the film has the grace and the generosity to give him some wins. So it's not just the four films in in Italy. He he does genuinely appear to knock it out of the park. Yeah, he's a good actor. You know. Yeah. When called upon to do so. But I thought that was absolutely strange that 
all that Lancer stuff. <laughs> I just wrote, I wrote question mark. A, what are we seeing? What the TV yeah. camera is seeing? Yeah, because but TV cameras don't shoot like that. Yeah, well, and no, but that was the weird thing, wasn't it? Because we're sixties sixties TV cameras don't frame and shoot like yeah, that. It doesn't yeah. feel at all because there. I mean, Lancer's obviously real. You can go on YouTube and you can watch the Sam Wanamaker yeah. episode. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Nothing like it because I had a look and it's uh, it's it's weird. Yeah, it's he's doing his own thing. He's doing a Tarantino yeah. version yeah. of of Lancer, but. Yeah, I, I I didn't love it, and originally there was twice as much. Um, wow. There was twice as much Lancer. That those that the, would the, too much. There were four Lancer <laughs> segments originally, <laughs> and the editor said that they cut the first and the and the fourth one. Right. So you're getting the two. So actually, if they'd left the other two in, which they'll turn up on Netflix mm. at some point, I think, but yeah. you would have been able to follow the whole episode. But I'm guessing there's yeah. lots of Scoot McNary and, and yeah. Timothy yeah. Elephant missing. Were you a fan of Lancer then? Did you like you like those seg- those segments? I find it slightly more trying the first time, actually, than the second time. The second time, again, I sort of relaxed and enjoyed it a bit more. I was a little bit unclear as to if it's if it's Johnny Madrid's show, why it's called Lancer and who, who was playing Lancer or would have played Lancer. And, <laughs> and who's Johnny, um, the Johnny Madrid? The Lancers, yeah. the Lancers, oh, are, half, the Lancers are half brothers. And in the show, the, the sister is, is not an eight-year-old. Right. She's 22. So okay. he's, right. made, he's made some quite dramatic differences. But I, I couldn't follow the Johnny Madrid stuff, to be honest. Yeah. I thought Johnny Madrid um, was a Lancer. He's a, I think he's the half brother of... Uh, the, yeah, the, oh. the very, yeah. It's interesting why he just didn't make up Bounty Law 2 or something. Yeah. Why he didn't come up with his own thing. Yeah. Well, he is burning the lines. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, I, is, yeah. I'd love to take a, a third look at this movie and, and note down all the movies at uh, and the Marquees, mm. you know, the night they raided Minsky's and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I loads that. of cinema stuff all over Based the place. On the marquee. Yeah. yeah. Um that episode of FB the FBI mm. is a real episode yeah. with that character name. Uh, that character is played by Burt Reynolds. In the actual really? episode, okay. yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Burt Reynolds was in. Burt Reynolds the was guest starred in it. Yeah, played that character that DiCaprio plays. Wow, that's an even bigger fall than Rick Dalton would have experienced, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it well, was. No, this is pre Stardom, right? This is pre Burt Stardom. Yeah, this is like late sixties. Burt Reynolds. Yeah. I think you said Burt Lancaster. No, no, Burt Reynolds. Reynolds. Oh, Burt yeah. Reynolds. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense because Burt Reynolds was meant to be, in some ways, his maybe his relationship with Hal Needham was in some ways the really. Oh. He said no. I asked him about that. He said it wasn't. Okay. Yeah, that's been reported, but he said not. He said no. It was all the stuntman stuff was all based on this real life stuntman that he heard about. I'll need him. Um, yeah, I, I really liked this film. I really liked Rick, and I really liked. Uh, I can never remember his name. Clint. Clint? Cliff. 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 Cliff Booth. That's my stuntman, Cliff Booth. Oh, uh, I, I, DiCaprio's accent in the film, I just love it. Mm. It's such a weird. Where is he meant to be from? He says at one point, uh, it's, it's going to go back. Minnesota? It's like Minnesota or Missouri yeah. or mm. something beginning with that. What did we but, think of the scene where Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch, where it kind of oh, turns into like this so good. 70s horror movie for 20 yeah. odd minutes, isn't it? How great is that? Nick so has good. a story about that, don't you, Nick? The Spawn Ranch. Mm. Well, only that I watched it with Quentin Tarantino sitting behind me. Oh, oh sorry, God. you dropped something there, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he stopped it just as it got to the good bit when he was oh, opening right. the door. And he went, yeah. you have to pay to watch <laughs> the rest. <laughs> just yeah. as it got to the good bit. <laughs> the really good bit. It's interesting. No, it's a, great, it's a great sequence. How Dakota Fanning has all the power in that yeah. scene, doesn't she? Over Bruce Stern's squeaky. Squeaky uh, from. So she's the one who tried to assassinate Gerald Ford. Okay. All right. Later on. I didn't know. Years that. Later. You get yeah. that. You get that. Yeah. Ah. She looks like an assassinating type. Well, what's genuinely, like, you know, I did a bit more reading on the Manson family yesterday mm. and. and you know, it was not just those three. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it was not just this one sort of fairly tight series of murders. Uh, of course, the Tate murders followed by the LaBianca murders mm-hmm. a little bit later. So there was there was quite a lot of 
general mayhem around them. And also then when the, their leaders, when Tex and, and Charles Manson himself and the rest were on trial, um, they kept trying to disrupt the trials. They kept trying to intimidate witnesses. And certainly the the story goes, the, the supposition is that they killed one of the defense attorneys for not doing a good enough job. Wow. He died anyway. He disappeared and then wow. he was found wow. dead during the trial. Wow. One of the really interesting things about all that is that Bruce Lee was the suspect and he was questioned by the police. Whoa. They found a pair of glasses uh, at Sharon Tate's house and they were just like the type Bruce Lee used to wear for reading and, and Polanski thought it was him. And so there was a whole whole thing with Bruce Lee, which is wow. interesting. Jeez. Steve McQueen of Hollywood was in the grip of, of a panic of terror after that as well. I read that uh, Steve McQueen and a lot of stars, they obviously increased their security as well. But Steve McQueen walked around with a gun for weeks after that, convinced that he was either going to be next or was going to be targeted as well. It is interesting because at the end of the movie, because Clint... Cliff! (laughs) (laughs) He's Eastwood, I swear swear I've seen this movie. I'm telling you. All right, so so Rex and Clint, um, (laughs) after they dispatch the Manson family members, you begin to worry about repercussions and the aftermath and, you know, will they send people to to sort Cliff out at the hospital. Good luck to them if they do, if they do yeah. clearly. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe the ending isn't quite as optimistic as we had earlier said, but I, I think it is. Mm. Going back to the ranch, um, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's, it's great that it's on a Western set. Mm-hmm. It's where they used to do kind of, it feels mm. like a kind of, you know, in the main street with mm. people having a, doesn't turn into a shootout, but yeah. yeah. But the people, you know, emerging... Um, kind of looking hostile through the door of the saloon and that kind of thing, yeah. and they're yeah. just standing there yeah. staring yeah. as dogs bark in the distance. Yeah, and they send someone away to get the the, the sheriff, as it were. Yeah, they look like yeah. a guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a real it's a really really tense tense scene, and it's so well done. And then leavened by that you know semi ridiculous encounter with George Spann and the the um, <laughs> yeah. you know the old blind man. Going, oh, is she the redhead? How would I know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that scene. Uh, Tarantino said it, he thinks it's one of the best of his career, and I, I kind of feel that he's right. I kind of love how Cliff doesn't tell Rick about it. <laughs> it's very kind of in character. Maybe he does, but I just like to think that he just goes back and just doesn't even mention it because yeah. he's so cool. Mm. It's not even a big deal. It's not even a big deal. Like I would, I would probably tell everyone mm. for quite. I a mean, while. he should tell someone because you're not really meant to drive on your spare tire, are you? I mean, that's bad for your car. I think okay. you need to get that t- spare tire replaced pr- with a proper tire as soon as possible, guys. So. <laughs> Don't make the mistake I might have made last year. (laughs) (laughs) I should have got a hippie to change it. (laughs) I should have got a hippie to change it. Can we talk about how this movie might have changed had Tom Cruise starred in it? That's news to me. So Tom Cruise is going to star in it? Yeah, apparently. So whenever Tarantino wrote the script, apparently he sent it out to a few people and and he was at one point talking to Cruise, I presume about playing Rick. No, no, Cliff. Or Cliff. Cliff. Cliff, definitely Cliff. Yep, I believe so. So I mean the stuntman thing. Tracks. Would that have changed anything? Would you know? Because here's I I would love to see, and I love the fact that Cruz is you know doing all these Mission Impossible movies and they're incredible. But I would love to see him have a really mm. proper run at an Oscar again. And I don't know whether he's maybe he's been burned too many times and now he's just happy doing what he does. There is a theory. Um, there was a very lengthy article a few years ago arguing essentially that since the couch incident. He has shied away from riskier roles. That up until about then, he worked regularly with, you know, indie directors and sort of, you know, took big, Mm -hmm. big risks in terms of his filmmaking career. And since then, he's been a lot more 
conservative with a small C in terms of the films that mm-hmm. he takes on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree. I would like to see him. But is is working with Quentin Tarantino a risk? Not a risk in yeah. the sense, but, yeah. but it's a risk for his image. But, yeah, I guess. Tom, I mean, Cruise, yeah. Tom Cruise oh. slamming a woman into a phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, ri- yeah, is it's a, a risk. Ri- yeah, I, I don't yeah, mean yeah. Tarantino himself as yeah. a risk, but the, the material might be. I, I think he would have been great. I, yeah. You start to kind of play scenes out. Um, and I believe Tarantino would have got a different Rick if Cruz had been the cliff, which I guess kind of makes sense. Um, so you start to wonder who would be the other part of that. But I, 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 I tell. <laughs> Tim Roth. Ben Stiller. Uncut. Ben Stiller. <laughs> ben Stiller could be Cliff. Ben Stiller only Cruz as Tom, Rick. but as Tom Cruise. Cruise, yeah. Tom Cruise yeah, is stunt double. That's how he's credited. I kind of think it's, you know, you can, you can imagine what could have been, but it's hard to... I think of a better pair than yeah. than this these two. I think they knock Ooh, out. What a lovely pair! <laughs> but yeah, it would be great to see because I, I I I still get sad about. I love Django and Jane. I, love, I think Jamie Foxx is fantastic in that. But I still get a little bit sad thinking, oh, Will Smith could have done that. Yeah, yeah. it was offered to Will Smith, and he could have actually maybe you know been could out of his comfort zone a little bit. Yeah. Could have been yeah. Michael Madsen in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, no, that would have been terrible. Um, right. <laughs> So, um, let's take some questions from listeners. Here is one from Hannah C. Stewart. These are all via DM on Twitter. And uh, Hannah asks, what I'd love you to explore on your podcast is the more subtle treatment of women. QT often comes up against criticism of violence against women, but in this film I felt women were so powerfully portrayed. And we kind of discussed this a little bit, but what I meant to say in relation to that is that I've seen a few articles alleging or saying that Tarantino should be cancelled for his portrayal of women over the years. And I think he's, you know, yes, Reservoir Dogs. No, obviously not. But Mm. I think by and large, he has always tried to write strong, interesting, that may be the the, the key word Mm. here, interesting female characters. I think he's got loads of interesting female characters. Um, I don't think that's actually the point of the... Argument, and I think there there is a very good article, and I have now forgotten where I read it, so that's unhelpful. Which basically went film by film and looked at what was very good and what was very bad in some of the films. And I read a terrible one in the Guardian. It wasn't, it wasn't the, same the Guardian. One, was it? No, there was, there was one in Time that, that counted up the minutes of screen time, didn't there? Oh, oh there wasn't yeah, that yeah, one either. Yeah. It wasn't nerdy about it. I just find it. that's a bit yeah. reductive. Isn't no, it? it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't nerdy about it that way. It was literally going through and looking so at the narrative are, what, role of each. What are the criticisms then? That... Well, something like. Um, Death Proof, you have five women just get slaughtered, essentially for entertainment, before five others then turn the tables. But you're setting up a woman's victory by essentially picking on women to begin with. So it's not it's not free of... It's not unloaded, basically, was the argument. I mean, it's kind of a similar thing in Kill Bill. You know, okay, the bride triumphs, but she has to cut her way through other women to do it. So it's... I don't know. I I don't think he's the worst in Hollywood. Like, if we were making a list of, you know, problematic directors, he's nowhere near the top. Um, But at the same time, you know, he's not, he's clearly not someone who respects criticism on that basis. And that in itself is a bit worrying to me. Who's near the top? (laughs) Go on, tell me. Tell me. You can tell me I'm a doctor. You're not no? a doctor, Chris. As oh, your lawyer. Yeah. He, he can't win. I don't know. I read an article uh, yesterday about this film, the new one, mm. saying that all the male characters are being bossed around by the women. You know, all the wives are kind of either nagging or controlling in some way. And even yeah. th- this article said even even Brandy the dog was like I mean, <laughs> controlling Cliff. But I mean, nonsense. that's like, no, but that's you nonsense. can't win then because you no. either have weak characters or you have strong no, characters. No, but that's absolute but, nonsense yeah. though because we see nothing of Francesca bossing yeah. um, Cliff around. And Brandy is 
absolutely <laughs> trained to obey to a fault. So that's and the dog. And there's a dog. And so that is clearly nonsense. Um, yeah. So look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, um, defend every single criticism that's ever been made of him, but some of them yeah. are legitimate and you shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, basically. No, don't do that. Yeah, it's bad. If you did that, you would be problematic. That's correct. Thanks. Because you shouldn't throw babies anywhere. So helpful. You're cancelled. Wait, what? Helen is cancelled. I didn't cancelled. actually throw any babies. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag Cancel baby. Helen. Hashtag Bafota. I'm shocked. I didn't think one thing would come out of this podcast would be that Helen would be cancelled for, for trying to throw babies. Not. I've already got the Batman fans after. <laughs> By the way, the secret number to the Bat phone is 530-7972. Have you called it? No. It's a Gotham City number. Duh. <laughs> Uh, Nick Gerber asks what scenes if any would you cut to shorten the two hour 40 minute runtime? I'm happy with the runtime. I'd leave it hmm. I, I trim down I'll be honest I'll trim down the Lancer stuff a little bit certainly the, the chili pepper fiddle one I'd, I'd, I would cut that down a little bit myself Is maybe, maybe, maybe the, in the four and a half hour cut when you put it all back maybe that becomes more rewarding but uh-huh. I, yeah I didn't really kind of follow what was going on there. Anyway, I would take that out, but I would put the entire Wrecking Crew in. So just you have. <laughs> no, I watched the Wrecking Crew. I watched the Wrecking Crew yesterday. Right, rotten. <laughs> it's rotten. It was interesting. I, I can see how, how she's come across as charming, but the yeah. red, the bits are not her, and it's so unfunny. Is she the best yeah. thing in that? Pretty much, yeah, but. It's, it's not even like it's one of the worst James Bond parodies. It seems to me, in like Flint, is a better James Bond parody than than Matt Helm. You know, it's a Tarantino. Um, we were talking about it, and he went, uh, have, "Have you seen the movie?" And I was like, uh, and, and immediately my reaction was just go, mm-hmm, "Yep." Yeah. And then he went, "Oh, what do you think of it?" And I was like, "Oh God, <laughs> do not be trapped in this cul-de-sac." And I just fessed up. No, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it because I didn't want something to go. What was your best bit? What you...? So um, well, about the Wrecking Crew, about the Wrecking Crew, the Wrecking Crew, the characters. No, I have seen one spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question from at G J G Murray. I'm getting names all wrong today. At Gillian Gill Murray. What does a pod think of the reading of the film as a celebration of traditional macho values? Despite Brad Pitt's character's depiction as a possible wife murderer, are we not supposed to cheer as he dismisses and destroys the counterculture? Yeah, it certainly seems to hate hippies. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there is, it says over and over again, like, it fucking hippies. R- like, Rick, Rick hates hippies. Yeah, Cliff, but Cliff is waving at them and uh, he's, he's like, a little bit more, and he, yeah. he buys some drugs from them. You know, he's, he's yeah. more on board. It's Rick who hates uh, okay, them. Okay, and probably fair. hates them because of professional reasons and he sees them as being young people. He probably hates all young people, right? Yeah, yeah, he's he's an old man but yelling at people a, to get off his lawn in in a, in a weird way, isn't he? Old man yells at clouds. Yeah, he's yeah. a bit he's a bit like that. But it's a celebration of those values, isn't it? It's not it's not a satirical take on those values, is it? It's not like a pointed critique of them. Well, like is is Paul Revere seen to be like a, a hippie band, the band that Sharon Tate listens to? Because that seems to be more like mainstream, yeah, young people mm. thing of the time. And I think I feel like he's okay with that. But there is no evidence in this film that he's in any way cool with hippies, I feel like. I'm not sure he's endorsing Rick and Cliff entirely. I mean, they're racist no, for one so. thing. Yeah. And also, no. I'd noticed when I saw it the second time, they litter a lot. Like, there's a great scene where yeah. DiCaprio, <laughs> where Rick gets on the lot, he's having a coffee, and then he just stops, he, just he, just, throws, he it throws it, but doesn't drop it, he throws it on the floor. It really made me laugh. But yeah, they're not, yeah. I mean, they're not model citizens, are they? No. I think... Hippies, in the, for the most part in this movie, are represented by the Manson family. Yeah, who are perhaps not. <laughs> yeah. And actually also where, like, let's, not, let's be clear, they were not 
true hippies. They were yes. not about peace and love, most no. obviously, but they also yes. were massively racist. Their whole thing yeah. was igniting a race war. Yep. So, you know, again, not hippie values as nope. far as I'm aware. Terrible shits. There's a, even, yeah. There's a great uh, Quentin Tarantino likes to dress up when he's shooting. Uh, so for the Lancer stuff, he would sometimes wear a cowboy outfit. And there's a great behind the scenes photo online of him uh, shooting a scene with the Manson family where he's wearing like full hippie gear with like a kind mm-hmm. of bandana. And it's amazing. Look it up. So wow. I, I think he's I get the sense that he loves all those um, counterculture movies yeah. as much as he likes the, yeah, know, the old fashioned stuff I think he loves both yeah mm. I think this is the stuff he grew up with I don't think he's condemning it in any way shape or form and I think that Rick Dalton's a deeply deeply flawed character and he's the one who's <laughs> has that margarita fueled rant at the uh, the Manson family so I don't know that, that Tarantino's endorsing that uh, as for Cliff was coming full circle to where we started I think you're meant to be unsettled I think you're meant to laugh cathartically at the violence that's happening and then catch yourself and go oh hang on What's happening here? Uh, and even at the end, when Chekhov's flamethrower is un, is unfailed, mm. I think uh, you're meant to uh, question yourself a little bit as What's well. What's Chekhov doing this year? We've had Chekhov's corridor full of knives, Chekhov's flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in fairness, Chekhov's corridor of knives in John Wick Chapter Three. This is a spoiler special for that as well, by the way. Uh, is introduced in the first act and deployed that's almost true, instantly. That's true. Chekhov's but gauntlet? That's not Chekhov. Here we, have, <laughs> here we have Chekhov's acid-tipped cigarette, we have Chekhov's flamethrower and Chekhov's killer dog. Mm. All in the same film, all coming to a, to a nice boil. Chekhov had a heck of a arsenal, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. Yeah. How great is the flamethrower? I'm trying, to re- I'm trying to remember the line early on in the movie where it flashes back to him learning how to use the flamethrower. Isn't and it? Oh yeah, it's a bit hot. Yeah, it's a bit hot. Yeah, that yeah. That's a flamethrower. <laughs> oh, it's just great. What, what's the kiss-off line in, uh, in the 14 Fists? Itself. Oh, it's um, Mc- of McCluskey. It's uh, it's something like anyone order sauerkraut. Sa- Anybody fried order sauerkraut? fried sauerkraut? Fried, not yeah. grilled. Okay, <laughs> it's very important. Yeah, important. I mean, distinction. it's, it's <laughs> yeah. sautéed. I mean, I must know what cooking method he he uses. <laughs> I know a really Nazis. boring bit of trivia about that. Bring it. That Go scene. for it, Nick. Are you Love ready? It. Go yeah. for it. All right. So during the fourteen fifth and McCluskey scene, yeah, the music is unused Bernard Herman music for Torn Curtain. Wow. Ooh. Very good knowledge. That was pretty boring, right? That's nice. Great. Really? I love <laughs> That's that. That's great. That's fantastic. What, yeah. was, what was the music at the Spawn Ranch when he's in the going down the corridor? So it's what she's listening to on TV. Yes. I think it's from Torn Curtain yeah, as well. Thought, yeah. Okay, cool. Good work. Good and work. I'm trying to remember what the, 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 the bit of music at the end, when the final shot where it sort of cranes over the fence and Rick is meeting Sharon. It's music from an old movie. I'm going to look it up. Do it. There's a reference to Audie Murray early on. Did people hear that? Audie Murphy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone calls uh, Clint... Cliff. <laughs> Clint. You got it right. Cliff. Clint. It's Cliff. Cliff. Yes. Cliff Booth. I, I said Cliff. You said Clint. <laughs> no, you, said, you said Clint. Cliff. 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 Someone calls Cliff Audie Murphy, don't they? Yes, yeah. they do. Okay. So do people know who that is, do we think? Let's, let's tell him anyway. He was a real-life World War II hero. Yes, he, he was. was a tiny, scrawny <laughs> man. Tiny yeah. fella. Tiny little fella. Bite your legs. Who basically... Yeah, but he basically bit the Nazis' legs. Like, he basically one-man armied the shit out of World War II mm. to the point when when they decided to make a film about him, they couldn't find anyone to play him except him. So he played himself in the sort yeah. of propaganda biopic of his own life. That kind of echoes in Glorious Bastards, isn't it? Yeah, Dan- very much. Daniel Brühl plays himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so anyway, that was just a nice yeah. little no, it's, reference. It's lovely. Also, uh, what do we think of the extended Red Apples commercial <laughs> at the end? 
Tarantino's first kind of post-credits bit of yeah flippery. I thought it was fun. You kind of imagine that the uh, the Vega brothers watched that as a kid and decided to yeah. smoke that. That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. or, uh, or Butch, who literally does smoke red apples you know, in in Pulp Fiction, and he talks yeah. about smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo, which obviously is a quote from a song. But at yeah. the same time, you think, did he watch? Did he watch Rick Dalton? Yeah, and it, it just gives this lovely idea of this. This movie taking place in that alternate mm. extended Quentin Tarantino verse. Yeah, this this idea of a shared cinematic universe is really interesting, <laughs> It'll never and I catch think it's something that people should explore. Perhaps mm. vis a vis superheroes. Superhero, yeah, good I shout, man. I don't say working. Yeah. So does that mean stuntman Randy is related to stuntman Mike? <laughs> you never know. I saw a slight resemblance. Yeah. Like, it did know, look like yeah. the you know, almost the same person. Could be a father and son, couldn't it? Yeah. Could be a father and yeah. son. You don't know. You just don't know. Uh, I, I right. want to know what rat-flavored dog food tastes like, or raccoon. That's yeah. a very interesting way he has of that dog food d- d- mm. delivery system. I that. just thought that took forever on film. <laughs> I thought, is this ever going to end? <laughs> Most stomach-turning yeah. thing in the entire movie was Rick throwing his Cliff was Cliff throwing his cigarette into that uh, oh. into that pan. Yeah, no, yeah. don't yeah. do that. Yeah. No, it's not good. It's yeah. Also, no, licking that. the dog food was also yeah. pretty gnarly. No. Yeah. Totally on board with that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. rat flavored dog food. It's rat flavored dog sure food. Sure, it's essence of rat. Mm. It literally says rat flavored dog food. Oh well. I just want to say there's another Inglorious Bastards reference. Um, one of the films that Rick makes in Italy is directed by Antonio Margariti, who is obviously the pseudonym uh, of uh, Donny Donovitz in Inglorious Bastards. Good knowledge. Whoa. Very good. I did not read that off the internet. Oh. I, I have one last question. Can I have yes. one last question? Of course. If this is Quentin Tarantino's penultimate film, what would we like to see him do for his last film? Oh, let's get into this. I think he, he's talking about doing a horror film, mm-hmm. hasn't he? Which, looking at Spawn Ranch, you think was yeah. great. Yeah. There's talk but, of a London gangster film about five years ago. There was talk that he was thinking of making, of making a gangster film over here. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm into I like this idea of a Quentin Tarantino rom-com. He made that thing when he was a kid, <laughs> didn't he? My my best friend's birthday or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that. And that has elements of that, I think. So I'd like to see him deconstruct and reconstruct rom-coms. That'd be great. He's very good at meet-cutes, isn't he? Yeah. He's very, you know, Reservoir Dogs hinges on a meet-cute, so an undercover, yeah. you know, undercover cop meets, uh, uh, meets yeah. a diamond thief and, you know, they get up to all sorts of shenanigans. And when you go on Pop Fiction, you go on the date with Mia and... You do, and yeah. You go on, you get the whole date. You're not cutting around from the date. Oh, you, it's a date, the date, the date is the thing, isn't it? Okay, so I was, it's going to be a rom com with a body count, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. Well, didn't he kind of do that already though with True Romance? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, yeah I'll get my coat home. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want his last film to be a Star Trek film, but apart from that, I'm pretty pretty flexible. Okay, okay. Well, here, okay here's my thing. I think this ten. I, I, I think he's probably stubborn enough to stick to this ten films an hour thing. Yes, but I really don't think he should uh, because. Oh. Say he makes his 10th film and say, for example, just setting aside the argument that this is his 10th film. <laughs> uh, let's say this is his ninth film, ninth and a bit, counting four rooms. And say he makes the 10th film, say four or five years down the line and it's great. And then he goes, right, that's it. I'm done. I'm retired. But one day he's walking down the street and this idea pops into his head for the, the perfect Quentin Tarantino film. But he goes, no, nah, I'm not going to make it because I've done my 10. I'm out. Hmm. Who's yeah, that benefit? Who does that benefit? Six. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think he's going to go into streaming 
and television. I just think long form stories is where he's at. Netflix. And that'll get him out of his 10 film filmography mm. thing, wouldn't it? I think another way of getting around it is to call a Quentin Tarantino film a film that he writes and directs. Whereas if he did Star Trek, he's not writing that. Therefore, he could say it's just a kind of a, I'm a kind of a gun for hire. I'm a Sam Wanamaker. Oh. Uh, I don't, you know, it's not necessarily a Quentin Tarantino film. Maybe like Sam Wanamaker, he'll rebuild the globe somewhere. <laughs> Nick, what would you like to How see? How good was Nicholas what? Hammond as yeah, Sam Wanamaker? Spider-Man, man. I've got to say, Spider-Man MVP of that movie. I yeah. love this scene. It's yeah. so good. What, would you um, like to, what film would you like to see Tarantino make last? You know what? I'd kind of like to see another Kill Bill. I, I, of all his films, that one I'd quite like to see him go back to. Because they, they kind of set it up. Mm-hmm. It's the young girl who's going to go up oh, against the bride. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. kind of think he's got a hook there. And I just... You know, they're just fun. It would be fun. It would be good to see him go out on a really fun note, yeah. a high energy note. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be cool to see him do sci fi. So I guess the Star Trek thing. Ugh. I don't know. I don't, that, <laughs> Sci- look, that doesn't I'm feel sorry, like sorry. a good fit, though, does Let it? Let me be clear. Yeah, I am 100% on board with Quentin Tarantino doing sci fi. I remain very much to be convinced about Quentin Tarantino doing Star Trek. And yeah. I think I know the film that you would be totally on board yeah. for him doing. Oh, no. Ant Men. And the Wasps. <laughs> Maybe this is why they didn't announce an Ant-Man 3 for Marvel's Phase 4, because they're holding on. We'll find out one day, and hopefully he'll come back in the podcast and talk about it. Uh, but until then, that is it for our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood spoiler special. Hope you enjoyed it. Our next spoiler special, All Things Being Equal, will be for a little film I like to call It Chapter 2. Ooh. Oh, with the director and producer... Sibling partnership, Andy and Barbara Muschietti. So that'll be hopefully a lot of fun. Fingers crossed that that it'll actually be terrifying. happens. It will be. It'll be obviously you know hugely terrifying and you know people dressed up in clown suits. But enough about me. It's a long one as well, isn't it? It's almost three hours, like yeah. like this one. So I wonder if there'll be two hours of just Pennywise driving around, <laughs> <laughs> and just like really intense horror at the end with his pe- monkey feet up on the dashboard. <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be people driving around, but just past his gutter, and it'll be just a one shot <laughs> on the gutter as cars pass. I'd watch it. Would totally be there. Uh, anyway, until then, until that special occasion, until we meet again, the regular Empire podcast is, of course, out every single Friday. So do listen for that as well. And we're going on tour. The regular podcast is going on tour. Woo-hoo! Very, very exciting. We've been hoping to do this for a while. And we're doing a little toe in the water mini tour of the UK uh, through September and October, starting September 14th at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place in London, then September 19th, the Cameo in Edinburgh, September 26th, City Screen in York, October 3rd. Fact in Liverpool, October 10th, the Duke at Comedia in Brighton, and then October 17th, a sort of homecoming, Helen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to Belfast, so we are, as part of the Cinemagic Festival. Chris isn't reading that. He's, he's, he's got that off the top of his head. That's amazing. He actually been working on this read. for a long time. <laughs> I know these dates off my heart, and trust me. Uh, so go to the Empire website or check our respective Twitter feeds uh, for more details on how to get tickets for those if you are so inclined. And uh, we would love to see you there. Uh, and do like and subscribe to the podcast if you can. Right, that's it. It is goodbye from Ian Freer. I'm Ian Freer, and don't you fucking forget it. <laughs> it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. I'm as real as donut, motherfuckers. <laughs> Are these quotes in the film? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Why else would anyone say that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovely non sequitur. I, I, I like it. When does he say that? Um, I think Tex says text. it. Tex says it. When Brad Pitt asks, are you real? Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. That's a funny bit.
<laughs> it's a goodbye from Nick Dissemblian. And away we go. That's from the That's exactly night. how Brad Pitt says it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I didn't play Cliff. I got through to the final round. Yeah. Damn it. So close. And it's a goodbye from me. As you can probably tell, I don't remember any lines from this movie, so I'm not going <laughs> to... Clint, something about Clint. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going off to study a chart for four hours. It simply says, Cliff Booth. Cliff Booth. Cliff. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. I've been Clint Booth. See you next time. Bye.